Marvels by Alex Ross and Kurt Busaic. All right, so this is amongst my favorite storylines. Mine too. Uh, love it. Uh, actually, I delayed reviewing this one simply because, well, our show's relatively new and wanted to get my feet wet with some stuff that's not normally reviewed out there. You could probably find this story reviewed by many other podcasts out there. However, at the time of this recording, we are in the midst of Marvel potentially doing away with uh, a lot of continuity. So, in the interest of preserving the story, uh, we're here to review it in a post-Secret Wars... What is that? What do we even call Secret Wars 2015? Is it Secret Wars 3? <laughs> it's, or you know, 4, I, really? I Marvel Now or Marvel oh. Added. They're this, they've tacked they've they've a new buzzword onto it, which is just like, all right, you know. They might as well just call it, like, Marvel Rainbow. Oh, okay. You know, since it's it's the big push towards, towards maximizing public awareness of diversity. Okay. Which so, I'm not I'm not opposed to per se, but I'm mm-hmm. just like, you know, look, it's okay it's okay, but do you have to like do you have to bury the old classic heroes? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So we have a story that was written in the nineteen nineties, ninety what, five, ninety four? <laughs> Ninety-four. Yeah, I was working at the comic book shop. Yeah, so that, that, that would have been around that time. So the story was written pre nine eleven and pre Marvel Cinematic Universe. And reading it today, uh, you cannot help, or I could not help, but be reminded about both of those things. Uh, we have so. New York City under siege. Uh, at the time of reading it, while it was a fun concept to imagine, nowadays it's uh, kind of a frightening reality. We have the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Which, um, as you dig through this, you'll see the certain characters that you know from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like the Black Widow, like Tony Stark, other characters, but um, they're drawn without those actors in mind. There's no Robert Downey Jr., there's no Scarlett Johansson, however, there is a Patrick Stewart playing Charles Xavier, so I found that interesting. Certainly is, yeah. Still years before even that first X-Men movie ever came out. And this, weirdly enough, this movie was cast. Well, or this this comic book was cast. We'll talk about this later. But I mean, yeah, there, there was various actors and, and and actresses and just public people that were used as the basis for uh, some of the the characterizations. I mean, Timothy Dalton is Tony Stark in this. Mm, that's who they got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you look at it, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's Timothy Dalton with a mustache. Very cool. Uh, Timothy Dalton was in Rocketeer also, right? Yes, he was. Okay, so that's the guy I'm thinking of. And he did have a mustache in Rocketeer. Yes, he did. (laughs) Okay. Um, An extremely underrated and unfairly maligned James Bond, in my opinion. But that's a podcast for something else. Yes, but speaking of that era, um, this is one of those things where I like to recommend to people who were really into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Captain America, First Avenger, and uh, conversely Winter Soldier, but mainly First Avenger because it takes place during World World War II, at least for the most part, uh, as well as if you liked Agent Pe- Peggy Carter on television, this is a good one for you. And then visually, we've got the photorealism and the introduce- introduction of Alex Ross. <clears throat> very much so, very much so. Um, kind of curious, going back to uh, recommending this for uh, somebody new, <clears throat> this this is one of those rare things that you know people uh, people will say, oh well, you know, I'll you know if I'm introducing somebody to comics, uh, I'll give them a copy of Watchmen, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's a huge disservice because mm-hmm. Watchmen and several other seminal works really it only its context is only really correct if you've read a, a fair amount of comics mm-hmm. and you've got okay, it establishes the tropes and and the methodology of it, and then it deconstructs it. Right. Um, this is a unique approach that doesn't require that. You could throw this at a, at, at, at a layperson, mm-hmm. and they will. I think they will be completely entertained. You could throw this at somebody who never read a comic book in their life and may not even be interested in comics. Mm-hmm. But the perspective of it, I think, is is entertaining, and they could put this down, and they still might never want to be read a comic book in their entire life, but... Mm-hmm. It's entertaining, right? It really, it's the it, to me, it's the exception that proves the rule about introducing people to to this medium, or at least the superhero genre or or cape shit as I call it, and um, and just basically be like, oh, here, give give this a try, and mm-hmm. um, and again, it's that that's this glorious perspective that they created from the man on the street. I was originally torn when this came out. Do I recommend this to someone who doesn't know comics? Because in knowing the original continuity. 
I was feeling like that was almost essential to really appreciating this story. However, now we're in a post MCU and with knowing uh, the Avengers, we uh, upon re- this recording Avengers two is still in theaters uh, actually. And now that Avengers two is out, I'm flipping through this. It's like, Oh wow. And I don't even have to explain who the Scarlet witch and Quicksilver are anymore. Uh, and vision. Yeah. And, and that's all in there. There's so much in there that I can be like, okay, this is the one that's played by this actor. I, I've always looked at Marvels as something that I would love to th- I would love to throw to somebody, again, who's never really read comics, mm-hmm. and get their feedback on it, kind of from the same perspective of if you find somebody who's never seen any of the Star Wars movies, mm-hmm. and then ask them to watch it, but ask them to watch it in episode order. Actually, oh, starting with Phantom Menace episode <laughs> one. Okay. Which I don't think would necessarily be a bad thing. I Several years ago, I, I, I met a woman at a party that was going to do that, and I, I was like, you know, I, I, would, I meant to keep in touch with her because I would have loved to have gotten her perspective on mm, that. Okay. Somebody who actually watched watch one through six and mm-hmm. see what the difference was for them. And, and, right. and I think, yeah, I think, again, I think of this, this, the eyes of Phil Sheldon, and I, I think some of the, there's a lot of mystery to it about what's going on, and that... That is the whole point to it, you know, the story yeah. of Galactus, and you only see it from down in the street, you know, at yeah. the Baxter building, and it's like, what the heck is this? One of those things that uh, takes takes me back to, to 9-11, just people street level looking up in terror in New York City, thinking, this is it, the world has changed, it's never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Phil Sheldon, um, that is our main character in this story, he's a photojournalist, and he is roughly the same age as Stan Lee. And upon this recording, Stan Lee, still alive. Yeah, God bless him. Um, I find it fascinating that you can kind of transpose the two and think, if Phil Sheldon were really existing, he would be Stan Lee's age, still alive today, and still with a little bit of that kick, with more more energy than people, other people his age. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it, 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 yeah the character of Phil Sheldon is, is, is the everyman... And yet he's not. He mm-hmm. he just, he's, he's a character that happens to be there at the beginning of what he calls the Marvels, which is, and it all parallels uh, Marvel Mystery Number One, which mm-hmm. was the first appearance of the original android Human Torch, right. uh, and the Submariner, aka Namor. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's just that perspective of yeah, what would happen in the nineteen you know thirties, you know early forties, if uh, an artificial man who could burst into flame were suddenly introduced to the public? Yeah. <clears throat> And then immediately after that, Submariner, you know, and they freak out. He's like, a, a naked man came out of the water and he threw a car. Right. He threw a car, yeah. you know, and 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 you see it's through use of newsreel footage. Um, Alex Ross, you know, paints everything, paints newsreel stuff in black and white and the gorgeous aesthetics to it. Um, he, the neat thing about Ross, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about his art in depth in this, but the, right. right out of the gate, not only does he... he is a great he has a great aesthetic and he really does his research and he really captures all the the nuances of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are dressed appropriately, yeah. but it does not fall into any sort of a caricature. It's not like everybody's running around in zoot suits and, yeah. and it's not like every guy is wearing a fedora mm-hmm. and you know it's not like all the press guys have a little press you know like like pass like stuck in their hat band or anything. You that see the variety of, of body types and, yes. and images. You see the the skinny guy with the slicked back hair. You see the the burly guy. You see the older guy. You got the guys with glasses and whatnot. You see what J. Jonah Jameson looked like mm-hmm. when he was in his 20s. Right. Yeah, he's a character in this. He's a contemporary of Phil's, and it threw me off for a second. I didn't know who he was, but mm-hmm. the, when he got up and he had that snicker look on his face, he's, well, when I'm running the bugle, mm-hmm. things are going to be different. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> it's J. Jonah Jameson before he got the Hitler mustache. Right. And, and it, you know what? And it works. It, yeah. it, it, it works so well. There's a lot of... Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of retro Easter eggs, which usually I'm not too much of a, f- uh, a fan of. But the whole mm-hmm. point of Phil is that he his history is that he did kind of it was a he was a little little big man, um, Dustin Hoffman or like a Harry Flashman type character where he just happened to be around the corner right. when seminal events happen in the Marvel universe, mm-hmm. and that that kind of make it work. And you could well, somebody came and argue maybe that was his superpower that he didn't even know about. <laughs> Just be there when it's happening. Gotta be there when it's happening. And I find it interesting, too, that they made him a, a photographer. 
Yeah. And it comes out later on, I mean, about his, his attitude towards the upstart Peter Parker. But um, <laughs> I, I think that harkens to a kind of a love for... A lot of people don't realize what a big deal a photographer's used to be in yeah. the heydays of Life magazine, mm-hmm. which was e-entertainment news and TMZ and your and your regular news outlet and everything else. The, the, the romanticism... Uh, that photographers used to really carry was yeah. way more important than it kind of is now. Right. It wasn't so... Well, you had only three networks on television. You, it was even at, before television. We were talking about the radio Oh, yeah, stuff. that's true. And oh, yeah. We were talking in the 40s. So sure. It's very important. Yeah, the war correspondence. Mm-hmm. And when he... Because because he, he, yeah, at one, early on, he loses his eye. We won't mm-hmm. give away how, but... Um, and again, it's an, almost another comic book convention too, where uh, you know, losing an eye, an eye patch type character. I think that they just early on, you know, he went, I think that just gives him an idea of okay, he could turn it in one direction. He could be all like, okay, he could he could hate the Marvels, but instead he becomes even more enamored with them. Mm-hmm. And they never turn into like a, a, a Moby Dick type thing where he gets. People accuse him in the story of being obsessed with the Marvels, and I don't think so. I I really think that he is just he's just in all of them of, wow, what's going to happen next? Yeah. Physical uh, descriptions of the uh, of the trade, because it's made in the trade, so conceivably you <laughs> could have the trade. There's multiple versions of the trade, so it's- you could read this story any number of ways. The original way, which was the original four, the, the, well, there's the digital now, so mm-hmm. you could read them in digital format. You could read the soft cover trade, or you could read uh, your version, which is the ten year anniversary. Yeah, it's the ten year anniversary hardcover. Hardcover ten year anniversary, and and uh, I got to read through that hardcover. It is actually the best coloring of any version I've seen. Every other version is more of a faded, uh, light coloring, whereas that that's very bold and dark, and it really pops out at you as you're reading through it. I remember reading that that uh, hardcover, and I was like, I don't remember being this vivid. This is I always remember comparing this to his later work, Kingdom Come, for DC, and Marvel's was... Um, it didn't pop as much as Kingdom Come, but now reading this bold version, I was like, whoa, underappreciated artwork. Marvel was very trepidatious about this from mm-hmm. the get-go. Uh, they were... <clears throat> it took a, it, 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 they they uh, Ross would be saying like really broke themselves through gla- broken glass to to get Marvel to approve it and uh, and then of course it became like one of the biggest hits of that year yeah I mean it really after that first issue you know it, it really took off and um, and then then of course now some Marvel loved it and mm-hmm. you know and they gave Alex Ross you know the kind of the keys of the kingdom with the, his his Twilight series which eh, I, I I could take or leave it mm-hmm. on that one. But um, I think, and I think, really, I think it boils down to one one thing that is, is prevalent in this. Um, Ross and Busaic are fans in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time in the '90s, deconstructionism was still pretty big, and it was about to get bigger, and I think it's still getting bigger. But the neat thing about Ross is he's an, he's got this he's an amazing illustrator, but he has a True reverential love for the concept of the superhero. Mm-hmm. He really does. He's, yeah. so we, we, we've seen that uh, in his work on Marvel and in DC, mm-hmm. and he really, he really loves these characters. He yeah. loves the, the 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 iconic nature of them and the mythological implications of them. Um, and Busaic is he's just he's just a, a great fan and he's a very very solid and i think very underrated writer yeah he was really hot when this came out mm-hmm. and um throughout the 90s he kept that equity going and then around the the, the bill Jameis area he was kind of kind of pushed to the side unfortunately mm-hmm. okay. <clears throat> but uh yeah you you read this and then later on if you ever read uh, his his run on avengers with george perez which is like the the last truly great avengers <laughs> run of all time in my opinion <laughs> invite me on i'll talk about that for six hours okay uh, but yeah, it's really he knows continuity, but he doesn't beat you over the head with it, and mm-hmm. that really is the key to Marvels in here. In that, the Easter eggs are truly—they're a delight to see if you know the context of it. Right. But they do not interfere in the narrative of the story at all. You don't yeah. need to know them. It's nice to know. Oh well, that's when you know the Avengers were fighting Atuma. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you know as is. But you, yeah, you don't you don't need to know it. 
you know, and in some ways might even be cool. There were some bits in this that were going on that I didn't even know about. Um, and I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't read that. But it's nice, though, because when you're seeing it from Phil's perspective, mm-hmm. it gives that little sense of mystery yeah. and scariness. And, right. hey, what, what's going on here? The um, one difference between the soft cover and the 10-year anniversary hardcover, the soft cover only has one forward, and that's the Stan Lee forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a great forward. Um, if you have the chance to read either of the trades, definitely don't skip the forward uh, in any of them. There are multiple forwards in uh, the hardcover. Mm-hmm. So you also have Stanley as well as Kurt Busaic. You also have Alex Ross and you even have John Romita Sr. right before the final issue, which is the Gwen Stacy centric issue, which very appropriate to have him do that forward before that. Oh, yeah. Um so I really appreciated that hardcover, and if you have a chance to uh, check out that 10-year anniversary hardcover, it might be worth the extra money in getting. It's um, this this this. It's a hardcover worthy. Yeah. Uh, but you know, and nowadays they 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 you know it used to be anything if it went to hardcover, then really DC or Marvel or Fantagraphics or whatever that was like, no, this is supreme a plus list stuff this mm-hmm. is you know you know they weren't they weren't just gonna do you know x-men running around you know you know fighting mojo for the mm-hmm. umpteenth time to do it yeah um and yeah this is a presentational piece and this again this is this is something that you can have on your coffee table and yep. you know whether you're a geek or not and mm-hmm. everybody would flip through this and they'll be intrigued yeah, they'll be intrigued. At the very least, they'll be intrigued, and they'll certainly be amused. And they may ask you to borrow it, so <laughs> so beware on that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> keep keep um, <laughs> keep track of your Marvel's copies, please. Or do what I do. I have my hardcover copy of Dark Knight Returns, and if anybody says, "Can I borrow this?" I have a dog-eared uh, soft cover that I mm-hmm. own. <laughs> <laughs> so let's break down the very. Um, vague overview because we have this kind of broken down by the decade so as these stories first came out it's four books, so yeah. it's four books then book zero so books one through four originally came out they are essentially broken down by decade so you have the golden age decade of marvel then book two is the early 1960s uh with the mutant paranoia and the fantastic four being treated as the royal family mm-hmm. uh book 3 is the galactus invasion this is late 60s or mid to late 60s i should well, say well yeah it's, it's i'm not sure if it's it it's not so much like by time as right. much as event yeah it's driven by the events like but it is still chronological to some it degree it is yeah. yeah so it's 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 marvel mystery number 1 mm-hmm. and then leading up to that up to uh, world war 2 and the all winter squad or later renamed the invaders mm mm-hmm. mhm and, uh, yeah, then the, the creation of the Fantastic Four and the forming of the Avengers. Right. And then by book three, so you have the Galactus invasion, and you, you have a little bit more focus on the anti-non-mutant sentiment. There are a lot of people that are uh, kind of turning against, even if you're not a mutant, you're still a superpowered being. It's that... People blaming <clears throat> you for the problems of the world and uh, and still living in fear it's to that, some degree. It's that classic parallel that uh, that the X-Men always were, whereas right. <clears throat> early on, the X-Men were always a, a met- they were a metaphor in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. At the time, you would say, at the time you say, oh, they're a metaphor for Racial. racism yep. or even political. That's a, you know, so I, yeah. I've, I've read things that uh, it's like, well, actually the X-Men were a metaphor for communism mm-hmm. or socialism or just anybody that just was politically... Outside of outside your of personal the, beliefs. Yeah, at yeah. that time. Sure. And then the Claremont years, you know, they became a metaphor for adolescence mm-hmm. and your body changing, you know. Right. right. Rearrange, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, and nowadays... I, it's I, take I, on a, a homosexual Yeah, I've heard type. ultra j- yeah. gay, lesbian, trans sort of lifestyle thing. So it really is... Any outcasted group uh, can, can kind of be applied to the mutants to some degree. Um, but uh, one more thing... But the- basically... The white people are, and the white people in Marvels mm-hmm. are forming mobs, and they're chasing around, and they're mm-hmm. looking for mutants to lynch. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and people that you wouldn't expect to, but uh, I guess that's the way racism worked. I mean, it's people that you wouldn't expect to be racist, and oh wow, you're you're. Well, that. it's that it's that. To me, honestly, the the the, the imagery in 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 that anti mutant sentiment was is kind of reminiscent of like those those hideous pictures you see from like. The South, like in Selma and stuff, and like the like the segregation, mm-hmm. or even some of the lynchings, right, and, right. and it's 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 mm-hmm. powerful stuff. It's very powerful stuff. And we'll get it. We'll we'll can get into that later. Because oh, yeah. it's actually my my favorite image of the book is is book is four. Uh, it focuses on Gwen Stacy, 
um, who many regard as a turning point in Marvel's storytelling. You had a character who was altruistic, a girlfriend of a superhero, uh, not that she knew it, um, mm-hmm. and she winds up getting killed, and at the time, permanently. There was no bringing back Gwen Stacy, So, but the tragedy of the death of Gwen Stacy is highlighted, and you get to know the character before her death and all the great things about that character, Uh, so that's told very beautifully. Then, book zero, which is at the beginning, so it's told chronologically in the trade, but book zero was essentially a prequel released after the fact. It's not told by Phil Sheldon, it's more of a poetic description of the Human Torch Which was actually the pitch. Oh, it was actually it was it was drawn and painted as sort of a, a proto pitch that uh, mm-hmm. Alex Ross had uh, was trying to get to Marvel. He's like he was, he was trying to convince them. Look, let me paint a mm-hmm. miniseries, right. and they were like, oh, I don't know, you know, because it's be too expensive. Mm-hmm. We're not sure it'll work. So. And and again, they were like, well, you know, you do an X Men graphic novel or whatever. He's like, no, 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 I want to do, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's actually he's actually not a fan of X Men, right? Um, he was just like, they're not heroes, they're a gang, and I mm-hmm. and I and I love him for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not that I dislike the X Men, but at least he called them out in the terms of the X Men have basically been their sub universe, and they've been basically a gang of good versus a gang of bad, as opposed to mm-hmm. superheroes. He. Wanted to do superheroes. Right. And, uh, yeah, the, the evolution of that was he had done some stuff for Epic. He had done, uh, he had done, so, he'd done a couple of Dark Horse, he'd done a Dark Horse uh, Terminator project. Mm. And it's interesting, too, because he actually did the first adult version of John Connor we had ever seen. Okay. He uh, basically painted a male version of Linda Hamilton and gave him a beard. Oh, wow. And, uh, hmm. And, and and it worked though, and sure. that was that was the first time I I had noticed his stuff. And then he did a few things for Epic uh, Illustrated, and um, it, it was a good style. But weirdly enough, he would usually 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 you get these guys who uh, evolution of an artist is is that they 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 break into superheroes, and then they get frustrated because they want to go out and they want to do more erudite or mm-hmm. non cape stuff. Mm-hmm. Like David Mazzuchelli is a perfect example of that. Like you know, the second he got that first royalty check from Batman Year One, he was out the door on capes and he never looked back. Right. Ross, on the other hand, was frothing at the mouth. He wanted to paint capes. Yeah. You know, he wanted to, you know, and 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 so yeah, so he he, he did this. He did this Human Torch story. He so had- this Human Torch story, it um, and not to jump out of the trade too much, but uh, it does remind me of his take on X Five One. Yes. Uh, later in Earth X, yeah. um, which is Machine Man. For those of you who don't know, uh, and it, Earth X is told through the um, the perspective of Machine Man. So this is yet another Machine Man uh, and his perspective, or at least his perspective and those around him of his birth. Yes. So you have the Human Torch being created in a lab. Uh, the world kind of hates and fears him because he's dangerous. And he's forced to be put underground in concrete. Which is a retelling of the first appearance of the Human Torch. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, if those of you who don't know, all this stems back to Marvel Mystery Number 1, which is considered the first Marvel comic. And it introduced two characters. It introduced the Human Torch, mm-hmm. which was a new concept at the time. And he was an artificial man, a robot. And later, he, they they... They used him again, the, the character's name and the powers again for the Fantastic Four, yeah. which is the modern human torch you may know. Mm-hmm. And curiously enough, Johnny Storm even says, I'm like that old comic book character, the human torch. You mm-hmm. know? And then they, they brought him back in. And Namor the Submariner by uh, by Bill Everett, yeah. um, who was comics' first anti-hero, truly. Yeah. I mean, he... He really was even very unusual, even for its time. Um, mm-hmm. He was a guy who was like, "Yes, I will wage war on the surface world." And uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a great panel I saw recently of, of Namor where he's like, "Yes, I I have blotted out the sun, and the surface world will all perish." Wait, what am I doing? My people will perish too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally, this is all in one panel. He's gloating, and then he suddenly realizes in the same balloon. Oh, we need the sun also. (laughs) He just figured out the food chain. He made that math up in his head. Oh, wait. The sun's essential for all life. I know. This this is the the wackiness of it. And uh, and that, that, yeah, so... The, the the zero story was basically that, and so Marvel said, "All right, we'll take a chance on it." And uh, Kurt Busiek, the writer, he had um, 
he had been on the kind of, he had been on the fringes too. Um, like he did a Red Tornado series for you know DC in the eighties. Okay, and he had done little backups here and stuff. But uh, he he was looking for that 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 home run, and I forget how Ross and Bisayek actually hooked up. Might have been just been at a convention, and they definitely share a lot of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, they never collaborated together again, which I is a little disappointing. Yeah. I Ross is Ross is kind of like that, um, hmm. but I, I don't hear them ever say anything bad about them. But not like Mark Wade and and Ross on on uh, on Kingdom Come on Kingdom Come. Yeah, they. Oh, did they have a falling out? Oh yeah. Uh oh. Yeah, I mean they're 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 passive about it now. I mean now mm. they'll just say you know Ross just said well I I will never work with Mark oh, Wade again and and they say it about that. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if you look yeah if you look at the back of uh, of Kingdom Come the trade and that sorry to, to, to go off the handle hose here folks but you'll be mm-hmm. amused by this if you look at the very end the add-on um, there's a panel that he wrote uh, or panel that he painted where he's at a table in the background of Planet Krypton and he's arguing with Mark Wade. Oh. And it's very, very <laughs> heated. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> so, yeah, you could leave it at that. But, um, yeah, they, uh, yeah. Marvel. Anything more about Book Zero? That's there's really not that much content. There's, there's just... not very much to it. Yeah, it's just, it's just some, it's some gorgeous art. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love, I, I've always loved his take on the Human Torch. I mm-hmm. love how he, he paints the flames. Right. Because they don't really look quite like flames. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, he took almost like a negative image and just kind of painted it over it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just really, I like, I like. The way he painted it, and again, mm-hmm. he, he he made an, a very artistic choice in the background of a very hyper realistic sort of approach. And right. um, yeah, one if you've never seen Alacross's work, you're you're in for a treat. Oh um, yeah, he's he's he has a he's a fo- well, he uses a lot of photo reference, mm-hmm. and yep. I I think that I think that's okay because it's he doesn't he uses reference, he doesn't trace over them, or he doesn't even you know he doesn't scan them like Greg Land has become emphasis for doing. And he certainly doesn't use porn stars like Greg Land certainly does. Let's go into book one. Yeah, book one. Yeah, the uh... book one, uh, officially the first issue that anyone had read for this storyline, introduces the character Phil Sheldon, our main character, and some friends of his, one of whom... um, they don't outright reveal, but uh, if you're really looking for it, he does mention wanting to be the head of the Bugle, mm-hmm. uh, and that's J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah, you get to see him when he's young. Yeah, and uh, it's great. So Phil Sheldon gives his own perspective of the unveiling of the Human Torch. Yeah, he was there to cover it. You know, yeah. he refers to it as a uh, some. Uh, all the other guys were covering some some hot story about what's going on in Europe, but I had mm-hmm. a guy in a cover some crackpot. You know, yeah. <laughs> he was an inventor who claims to have invented an artificial man, and he really wants to cover the uh, the world war that's going on overseas that as of this point the u.s is not involved in and and very much so and that this this, uh, story takes place pre the bombing of pearl harbor pre-bombing pearl harbor and um pre but yeah i think i think at that time where maybe the war in europe was 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 rumbling going on um and yeah just like every guy of that greatest generation, you know, he was just like, I want to get in the thick of it. I want to get on over, you know, they were newsmen mm-hmm. in that classic, again, that classic old style newspaper man mm-hmm. guys, you know, a whole row of them, you know, it's, it's like with their sleeves rolled up and the cigarettes hanging out of their mouths, banging away on typewriters. Mm-hmm. And they were, they wanted, they wanted to get into the thick of the war. And that's exactly that's exactly what a photographer or photojournalist of his day and his time yeah. would have wanted to be. Like, I don't yeah. want to be covering some artificial man. What nonsense is this? And then when the human torch... Lo and behold, the, yeah. the, uh, the story comes to him. He yes. doesn't even have to leave his home city. And uh, the human torch uh, makes an appearance. Uh, suddenly the submariner makes an appearance. Uh, causing some sort of havoc, and then all sorts of capes are just kind of appearing out of the woodwork. Then they sort of appear around there. And, it, and it's, again... It's the re- it's the reaction of the people, mm-hmm. of and again too, Submariner and Human Torch were both outcasts. That's that's the curious thing. Right out of the gate, right, they were not. And at the time, comic books were, hello, I'm Superior Man. Oh, right. thank goodness you're here, Superior Man. I mean, the, mm-hmm. comics at the time were, they were simple, right. for lack of a better term, or or they had a, a more not a juvenile quality. You may have had like like the Shazam, Captain Marvel stuff. Had a more childlike uh, storytelling, which was endearing, 
A lot of them, though, were pretty much just straight up a guy in a cape. Who it was, was like, oh, the tar- they were you. targeting that younger demographic, yeah. right? You, you probably were targeting somewhere around a ten-year-old, nine-year-old, such. Yeah, and- they were not. Yeah, the idea of the comic book anti-hero or even the rejected hero, like the Human Torch, kind of emerged as mm-hmm. was still new, and that's reflected in here. the The public is is scared crapless of them, and yeah. again, too, it it. It treats the continuity and the history of the characters as fact. Like, okay, that's like when Submariner attacked the surface world, and then that first fight he had with the Human Torch. Yeah, you know, and people are like, "What's going on?" Maybe they'll mm-hmm. kill each other. This will be great. Right. And and then they shake hands, and and then and then everybody's still not quite sure what to think of. And mm-hmm. then then he shows up. Yeah, the hero of World War Two, Captain America. Yeah, and we see again. We see it from Phil's perspective, and then all of a sudden he showed up, and mm-hmm. the way that all of a sudden there's a, the, the the great the great cavalcade of of panels where people are just eating him up. The mm-hmm. the old Popeye guy was just like, yeah, he'll give that Hitler what for, mm-hmm. and you know the ladies are all like, oh, he's so tall and handsome and dreamy. And a young Nick Fury who's yes, like still has both his eyes. Still has both his eyes and he's just so like, Well, you know, I I think he's I think he's giving him, you know, it's like what's good, you know, and he's like expressing an interest in going on and getting into it. And, right. Uh, Soon to be Sergeant Fury of the Howling Commandos. But but the cool thing about it and, and I, I love mm-hmm. how Captain America is treated in this. I yeah. love this just oh, the, yeah. all the uh the the page of all the newspaper headlines and Phil's incredulation towards it, and he's mm-hmm. like, he just can't believe it. it's just like like fifth columnists and Nazi saboteurs. It's like this guy just walked into everything like a tank, and mm-hmm. it just, this guy walked into everything and just kicked ass. Mm-hmm. And again, you never really see him in action. You just see Phil's like Phil's point of view of you know I knew the guys writing the stories, and they didn't even believe what was going on, and right. and. And again, it was that that galvanization and that turning of the corner. And again, it's interesting because it's 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 indicative of the whole point of Marvels is people mm-hmm. in the face of the fantastic. Yeah. In that, okay, you know, Human Torch, scary. Mm-hmm. Namor, scary. But this guy in this Star Spangled outfit who's beating the crap out of like actual criminals mm-hmm. is embraced. Sure. And we see that later on, how just like some characters are embraced by the public and some are rejected. Yeah. You know, but they but they press on. So yeah, and then of course and this is one of the most fascinating things about um the trade in particular. You can go to the back of the trades. And you can read the bibliography. They Mm -hmm. cite actual storylines that all of these action sequences are inspired by. That's what really blew me away because uh, some of them I recognized from having read the stories, others not so much. And then I could go and read those stories. And now more than ever, now with the Marvel app or with just digital comics in general, you can look up these stories and read the original content and see where these... Uh, Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross stories were inspired from. I think is brilliant. There's another another just fascinating thing too about this first issue that was a big deal too. Is that mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of concern about. I always had this theory that Marvel was probably like, well, can't you start it with the Fantastic Four and Spider Man? Because remember, at at the time, there was definitely a. Not a, not that like they were ashamed of the old history, but I mean, let's face it, like none of their A-listers, even Captain America in the '90s, was not really an A-lister at Marvel, at least in terms mm-hmm. of the direct market. Everything was oh, all yeah. X-Men, they, and people knew Hulk and Spider-Man, but X-Men was definitely the biggest seller. And also, too, during the '90s, this was this was also during the Image Comics boom, mm, so yes. a lot of Marvel's A-list talent had bailed. Um, uh-huh. This was just past, you know, Mick McFarlane and and mm-hmm. and all the boys. You know, it's like taking their bags, going home, and starting up their own sandbox. Um, so yeah, it's, so I always thought there was a it was a ballsy move to say no, we're going to start with Marvel Mystery Number One, and we're going to start with these 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 characters yeah. at the time mm-hmm. and just focus on that and it definitely set a tone i used to joke around that like marvels is is marvel comics first vertigo book okay you know it mm-hmm. had that had that mentality of really sort of breaking away and um but it didn't have a somber tone no 
you know, that mo- all the Vertigo titles usually have. I and mean, it didn't feel so heavy. It was, reading it was a pleasure. Even in the well, dark I points think was that a pleasure. Was, it's the, the source material. Yes. Like, you don't have an overwhelming amount of death and tragedy in either the Golden Age or later the New Silver Age, as we're about <clears throat> to get into. And again, and it's not a deconstruction. Right. It really isn't. It's just, if anything, it's just, it's a perspective thing. Mm-hmm. And it's cool, too, because it really gives you, again, I always felt like, wow, yeah. We forget in modern comics that comics tends to focus on everybody with the powers and everybody in the room and anybody who doesn't have powers, who's ancillary connected to the heroes, is just basically there to be kidnapped or there to almost discover the hero's secret identity Mm -hmm. and have to get covered on up. And yeah, we, we... Unfortunately, do the, the, the medium and the length of it or whatever, but yeah, you just don't get the perspective of the regular folks. Yeah. And if you do, it's usually a mob or it's usually the press. Right. Like, well, what's going on here? What is this? And- but I think if if you were to argue that there is any deconstructionism, it is of those background characters, the, the average person. You deconstruct. Yes. Why are they so angry? Why are they yeah. so hateful? Why are they picking out certain heroes and not the others? So I think you are deconstructing. It's just not the main characters. I, I, I go with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, in that respect, it's something that's not been done. So I think that was very clever. Book two, uh, the cover is features the X-Men's angel holding a uh, mutant girl flying above an angry mob. Which is my favorite image from mm-hmm. the book. And that's saying something. Cause there's some beautiful imagery in that. Right. Um, I'm very proud to say I, I have the promo poster that they released, a full-size poster of Marvel's. Mm. Of that, and I have it autographed to Patrick from Alex Ross. Uh, oh, very nice. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a beautiful image, and it just, it is it is everything that the X-Men is about. Right. You know, the the angry mob, and think about it, too, the, look, at the, look at the mob. It's, it's mm-hmm. uh, the, the signs say, like, devils and Satan's yeah. children, and mm-hmm. they're talking about the mutants. Yep. And you've got a very deformed mutant girl. And whose savior? The angel. Right. The in embodiment an angelic, of good. In an angelic pose. He right. has scooped her up and he is flying, ascending into the heavens. Right. And there are people looking, not in anger. There's the lady there with the glasses and the bun. And she, <laughs> there's a great moment. She's looking at it and she's – there's a great – my her expression in that tells me that she's beginning to realize that she might be wrong. Mm. Yeah. She's, she's, she's in awe. Wait a minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's probably a a uh, a Christian, God-fearing woman. Yeah. And as a result, she sees something that is a very biblical image. And uh, yeah, she, she. And again, these these and this is these are these are folks from the '60s. So you still mm-hmm. got that that not as not as uh, you say liberal as uh, we are now <laughs> thinking nowadays. So yeah, right. they got that kind of spooky mob mentality, but. Um, mm-hmm. Now the sad thing is, is that 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 image doesn't happen in the comic. But <laughs> that specifically does not. Yes, that's no, correct. But... Unless we we don't know. I mean, I'm skipping ahead. We don't know what happens to this girl. True. So on a on an optimistic note, if you want a picture that she's not horribly murdered by an angry mob, mm-hmm. uh, maybe this is what happens, and uh, maybe um, Warren brings her back to Charles Xavier, mm-hmm. and and he finds her a good home. We can only hope. Well, when we do the sequel, we'll we'll talk about that okay. because her her story is actually uh, revealed. Okay, in the sequel, yeah, cool. So let's go into book one. Uh, book one cuts to Phil Sheldon's place of work. It is a newspaper. It is not the Daily Bugle. Um, and Wait, are we on book one or book two? This we're on is book two. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we're in book two. We're in book two, we're and at... it's twenty years later. Yeah. Okay, we are in the sixties, and again, this is the the, the 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 amazing fiat about this is that we, the it takes place kind of in real time. Okay, the the thirties heroes came out in thirties, and the forties, and this 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 right away was what blew blew my mind mm-hmm. was that. Starting this up was that, that they definitely proved that we are not going by the Marvel sliding timescale. Yeah. Where, okay, the Fantastic Four began the Fantastic Four five years ago, from mm-hmm. whenever five years goes now. So yeah. modern conventional things saying, yes, the Fantastic Four took their, their ride into space in 2010. Mm-hmm. This goes back to 
were starting in 1963 when Fantastic Four number one was published. Yes. And this is the beginning of the Silver Age. Yeah. Um, it's, it's 63, um, when X-Men first came out, the, uh, the uh, Fantastic Four had been out for a couple of years now. Um, and already been embraced. Um, Captain America has been dethawed. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. The Avengers have been formed, and just in two pages, Phil is already saying like, "Wow, so many of the, the things that it just suddenly happened." You know, it's like you know, like the Fantastic Four. You know, it's like like Thor, and then mm-hmm. that one again, a reverential scene. Then there was the big one. The one that lit up everything like a dozen Fourth of July. And then the crowd is looking up. There he is. And Captain America is leaping. Another symbolic thing because for between these two books, I mean, he was off the radar. No one knew what happened to Captain America. They assume he died in battle somehow. Mm -hmm. And now he's been recovered. And oh, man, Captain America is back. Very much so. Yeah. And that and then again, from the for the people on the street, Mm -hmm. that was that would that basic that basically Captain America's return kind of endorsed the heroes. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was a member of them too. It's like when he's run. Everybody was like, I don't know, but when Captain America came back in mm-hmm. the in that one page when it shows him leaping over and everybody in awe of him, right? You know, it's like there he is. You know, yeah. it's like wow. And Phil Sheldon says like never a moment's never looking back. A mm-hmm. force in chainmail. And the older guys like wow, he saved my whole unit back in the war. You know, and the, and the other kid is like he saved a lot of units, pop. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was another thing the parallel between this and Captain America First Avenger or I should say Winter Soldier, um, because those movies take place today, um, whereas he was from World War Two in that uh, story as well. However, this we have characters who were alive during World War Two. Seeing, oh man, I thought you were dead, and now you're back. This is awesome. Oh yeah. So it's not just a legend come to life. It is someone that they. It's someone that people experience on some level. Um, Let's go to the quick Easter egg that you pointed out to me. I did not know, and shame on me for knowing improv as well as I do. But uh, (laughs) Phil Sheldon's boss here, the image uh, inspiration for Phil Sheldon's boss was Del Close. A uh, legend in improv comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, for was... those of you who don't know, uh, Del Close fathered the Herald, the long-form improv, and also mentored tons of comedy legends that you might not have realized that he did. But anyone who went through Improv Olympic or many who went through early days of uh, Second City knew or interacted with um, Del Close. And so, we're talking... We're talking like Belushi, yeah, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, we're we're talking we're talking the the the, the comedy the, the comedy giants that basically founded the core of SCTV and the golden age of SNL, Saturday Night Live. But even later in Improv Olympic, I mean, you've got people like today, Amy Poehler, mm-hmm. um, uh, Tina Fey, who through Improv Olympic, like they interacted with Del Close before he passed away some some odd years ago. Um, but just a note. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's that's well, that's an interesting note too because Alex Ross uses for photo reference. He uh, he just went ahead and he used various people, sometimes actors, sometimes folks he knew as the models for uh, characters, mm-hmm. and um, some of them. And he could get away with that with the superhero characters because again, they're not the main characters. They're mm-hmm. always looked at. From Phil on the side, so there were some sly notes. Uh, you know, the, the the guy who played the professor from Gilligan's Island is Reed Richards. Mm. <laughs> you, you look at okay, yeah. yeah you, you look at the pictures, like yeah, it's it's him, um, Timothy Dalton. After is. he has a conversation with his Del Close boss, he gets into an elevator with JFK and Jacqueline Kennedy. Uh, and JFK is making his pose, looking down like the pose that you see in this famous mm-hmm. uh, burden photograph that is uh, actually a painting in the White House currently. And there are some, yeah, and there's, and it's not just actors too. There are various other characters of other properties. Curious enough, going back to book one and mm-hmm. then first newsreel footage when you see uh, um, uh, Namor and uh, and the Human Torch go in in action in the movie theater, the Shadow and Doc Savage are in the audience. In the audience. In the audience, oh, yeah. So, cool. But the whole thing is, yeah, there's, there are some unofficial Easter eggs in this that you won't find acknowledged in the trade, but if you go because to... Because there are other properties. Yeah, if you go to fan sites, of course, and, you know, there is... Later on, you'll, you might recognize a, a mild matter reporter from a great metropolitan newspaper, you know, <laughs> in it as well, too, and some other things, and we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we would hate that when it comes to it, but... So the core story, of course, is a very... 
um, fear of mutants based story. Um, Phil Sheldon has this conversation with his boss. He goes downstairs. Uh, there's a potential for him uh, writing a, a book. Where am I? Yeah, basically, he's going to be. He's he's already established a, a reputation for being um, a photographer. Yes, and of course, he takes the the picture of Giant Man, which was the first promo image released of the book too, of Giant Man, you know, high up above, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's basically he. What Peter Parker came to Spider-Man, the yeah. idea is that Phil in the Marvel Universe is to the rest of the heroes. Mm-hmm. He's just known as an A-list photographer who kind of like specializes in the Marvels, right. as, he, as he calls them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he's a freelancer, of course. He's on good relations with Jonah, but he also works across the street to the Daily News, too. And, right. uh, and it's again, it's a good job of kind of capturing the the feel and almost romanticism. And again, we mentioned earlier, um, the series Mad Men, mm-hmm. you know, reflects on this as well too. And this was long before Mad Men, but it's got that great early sixties. Mm-hmm. And up at that time in the nineties, especially most people of my generation, um, we thought of the sixties and all we thought of, yeah, Vietnam and Woodstock and hippies. And we tended to forget the whole rat pack. Right. Uh, you know, it's like, like, like Trilby, you know, mm-hmm. it's like dapper gentlemen. Yeah. And, and again, this captures that aesthetic very well. Plus I'm a sucker for sixties chicks and the, and the bun hair <laughs> and stuff. I don't know why, but probably, you know what? Probably, probably because of Star Trek. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have the parallel here between the fear of mutants. Um, there's actually a, a mob, that breaks out because the X-Men had had saved someone, but because they're mutants, everyone's in fear of them and they want them to go they thought, away. They thought they were attacking. They blame them for the whole catastrophe in the first place, which is what happens in the early comic books of the X-Men. If you read those early issues, and they're like, still you probably does. caused this in the first place. Get out of here, you dirty mutie. It, it is. Uh, the, the one thing that always set Marvel apart from DC was that the like a good chunk of Marvel's heroes were looked upon with scorn and fear mm-hmm. and just like people would and uh, it is interesting too because yeah th- this is this is the dichotomy of this whole issue is that the fantastic four have emerged and they are the darlings of the media they mm-hmm. are the darlings of america um you see like fan clubs dedicated to them uh um, they're treated like royalty they are they and really basically are basically they have a wedding that's coming up and it is essentially treated like the royal wedding absolutely it is a royal wedding of america and it's it's interesting too because there's a full page splash of the storyline and i remember somebody asked me it's like well, they got married in their costumes. Like, ah, you got to understand. <laughs> Fantastic Four Annual 2 is the wedding. Mm-hmm. And you got to understand, Doctor Doom sent every villain in the Marvel Universe against them. And so you actually had, in the storyline, somebody attacks and then a different Marvel character, like, fights them off. So oh. uh, the X-Men are there and they fight off the Masters of Evil. And, mm. you know, the Red Ghost shows up. But then Doctor Strange, like, whammies him off into oblivion. <laughs> and this is all going along while the Thing is just marching around saying, oh, geez. And the, he, he encounters them and then the other heroes go on. Oh, we'll take care of this, Mr. Grimm. You know, it's like, go t- attend to the wedding. <laughs> right. And um, at the very end, Stan and Jack try to get in and they're kicked out by Nick Fury. You know, he's like, no, nah, no, nah, if you ain't got invitations, get out of here. <laughs> this is not in the trade. So it's not know. in the trade. But if you read that original source but if, material. Yeah, but if you see this full page and you wonder why <laughs> the heroes, and some of them aren't known to be heroes. Doctor Strange is in it, and, and he's not publicly known as anything. Mm-hmm. Um, again, too, it's, it's that context of, well, if you read the story, it's awesome, but you don't need to. Yeah. Because, again, you were seeing it from Phil's perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, yeah, so you've got the adornment of... And the adulation of the heroes, right? But the X Men, because they're mutants, and because just that word "mutants" has become synonymous with with fear and the fear mongering. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bolivar Trask, the inventor of the Sentinels, is is milking it for all it's worth, and right. the propaganda of "oh, one day humans will be enslaved to the mutants," and and again, this is all from the comics. Yes, and. And it's it's always weird too, and and to this day, people are always like, well, you know, why are like the Wasp and Giant Man embraced? Mm-hmm. They have powers, and the mutants aren't. This is like just because, <laughs> what you know, what you know, why why are African Americans you know like 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 bashed, mm-hmm. you know, is by by white people? They're just like us. Their skin is different. And mm-hmm. I think that I think that's the point. That very question is 
the whole point. Right. That there is no point to this this fear or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And some people will rationalize it. They'll mm-hmm. be like, well, they're not like us. Well, what makes them not like us? Well, I mean, I could see myself becoming Iron Man. I could see someone injecting me with the super soldier serum. I could see myself inhaling pim particles, you know, whereas mutants, they were just born that way. And I can't relate to that because I wasn't born that way. Um, so that's the it's that's like, the that, justification. That's the, yeah, the weird justification. Well, it's it's weird. It's an explanation, but it's not a justification. You're right. Yeah, you know? but they think it's a justification. <laughs> it's a crackpot though. justification. Yeah, it is. Yes. It's well, it never was. Blah, blah, blah. It's like you explained it, but you didn't justify it. And Sheldon's in that camp. Like he, he's like, what is up he, with these mutants? They want to kill us, and I don't believe what <clears throat> is going on. Well, again, and and this <clears throat> and this kind of pulls in from. The perspective of the, the, the comics at the time. And yeah. in some ways, it kind of shows, too, that Xavier really wasn't doing as good a job as I thought he did. Mm. <clears throat> One th- – and this, 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 was, this was always a problem I did have with the, the X-Men series and Marvel's application of it was that I always felt that – the X heroes wasn't until actually weirdly enough when Joss Whedon did his run on Astonishing X Men, when <clears throat> Cyclops said, "Look, we got to go back to being superheroes. You know, we've got to we've got to do this, guys. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah, it's like we're kind of like minding our own business and we're just scaring people out. And that's kind of the mentality here because that's what the X Men did. They only got involved with things." In the early Bumblebee costume years, mm-hmm. when it involved another mutant, right. they didn't go on out. If Doctor Doom threatened something, they didn't go out and stop him. That's they were right. really only concerned with corralling other mutants. Other mutants, yeah. And in, and if you read those early issues, mm-hmm. they are kind of they really are separate but equal. Mm-hmm. In those early X Men issues, they really kind of are. It may not have been their intention to be so, mm-hmm. um, but it, it was kind of that mentality. But that was of, their their mission. Yeah, their mission was simply. We're going to find other mutants and show them that there's hope and, and a way to control your powers. Yeah. And so that you can't just go around willy-nilly and using these powers and further smearing the name of mutants. Yeah. Because if you do that, then it affects us all. Yeah, but they never they never did a bake sale. They never did charity events. They never, they <laughs> That's never, true. They never tried – They were bad with the, the public image. Yeah. They, yeah, they never tried to demystify themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and again, and, and – and, Ross's art in this is perfect because they're mm-hmm. in the shadows right. and they're almost amorphous and you just see Cyclops in the darkness and his visor glowing. Yeah. And he's scary. Sure. They are depicted as scary and terrifying mm-hmm. and yeah. Yeah. And so it does hit home with Phil Sheldon in this story mm-hmm. because he comes home, he he finds out that his two little girls are hiding a mutant girl in their basement. Yeah. And you know, oh man, this is another thing that's when I first read this, I didn't have a daughter. Now I have a daughter. <laughs> and so I can see like Phil Sheldon, he has daughters. Mm-hmm. And then this little girl's in the in the basement and it's like, "Oh, I get it now. Yeah. They're they're they can be little girls." Yep. Regardless of what they look like, a little girl is a little girl. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, I found that really interesting too. Um And it's such a sad story yeah. and, and and what's going on and and then Phil has that uh, that epiphany of because at first what you see is like, is she contagious? Is she, you know, he's like, he's really got that, that let's get out of here sort of thing. And then his wife, his wife is a very sweet and nice, great character. Mm-hmm. And, and we should, we should talk a little bit about his family because yeah. Yeah, the first issue is him, relationship with his wife. And mm-hmm. then he, when the Marvels comes on up in the first book, he, the world is changing. Right. Kind of the same way the looming war affected people, but for Phil, it's it's the idea of the marvels have arrived and we were no maybe we're no longer in charge of our destiny, everything else. And it and it screws him up to the point where he delays the wedding. Mm-hmm. But then he comes around and he marries her and and yeah. she's a very she's a very she's a very doting and, and, and sweet wife, and mm-hmm. not in a mawkish sort of way. But um She has her, her wants and needs, but she's extremely patient. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very, very much so. And uh, she's she's kind of a, a secret, I think, a secret hero in, mm-hmm. in the storyline. She grounds Phil 
Very much so. And and she she Phil is like really panicking and stuff and she's the one's like 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 Phil, we just we can't we can't do this and she's like, My God, you're right, she's just a little girl. Mm-hmm. And he still tries to get information. This is, I love the ones. There's a one clip where he just calls up the FBI. It's like, um, yes. Yeah, so I was just wondering if you had any brochures or information on mutants, sir. If you have a mutant sighting, we'll send a team over immediately. Please give your uh, no, 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 never mind. Click in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, no, no, never mind, never mind, never mind. And that was definitely like the McCarthyism uh, yes. represented there. Yeah, that's like the government that, agencies are definitely trying to quash this. Oh yeah, yeah. There's 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 McCarthyism. There's definitely the the specter of of J Edgar Hoover's FBI. Mm-hmm. You know, um, which is interesting too because Shield is kind of a part of that aesthetic, but that comes a little bit later. And in this comic, in this uh, book, you have um, the only actor represented that is actually in Marvel movies today, which is Patrick Stewart playing Professor Charles Xavier. Uh, and I found that really interesting because I had to kind of get over every other character who's portrayed as a different visual. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a lot of talks uh, in the comic book community about Patrick Stewart should play, if they ever made an X-Men movie, Professor X. So um, Alex Ross took that to heart and put Char- um, Patrick Stewart in the book. Uh, and it would be another what five or six years before... The X Men even comes to theater. Something that effect, yeah. And uh, there he was. Now, of course, Ross would said the time that he was he was inspired by mm-hmm. by them. And again, too, there's there's uh, so he just just went ahead and, and he and he he cast he cast people, you know, as and he, I thought he did a brilliant job of casting. Mm-hmm. I think a young mustache Timothy Dalton makes a great. Tony yeah. Stark. Oh yeah, he he really he really kind of does. Mm-hmm. You know he cast he cast this almost like a movie. Lyndall Hamilton is Alicia Masters, the thing's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there's this there's I still see some people in the background today. Oh wow, let's say hell, B. Arthur for crying out loud is is at the party. You know, mm-hmm. remarking that the thing, oh the thing, he's hideous. Well, at least <laughs> he's not one of those awful mutants. Mm-hmm. And uh, then eventually. The uh, the little young girl mutant, she... Uh, well, we won't writes... say, but yeah. Well, no, well, yeah. she writes a letter, tells the Sheldon family, thank you so much, but I, I, I gotta go. Yeah. I'm endangering your family. So she takes off, and we don't know what happens within the context of this story. And it becomes a source of shame to Phil, because mm-hmm. he's really he's really like, wow, I think I may have... May have failed her or mm-hmm. not done the right thing and um, it's, it's, a sad, it's, a, it's a sad moment. Yeah. And it even is... And of course, and again... It's great because his daughters, like most kids, they they had no concept of of racism. Yeah, you know they they found her a girl their own her own their own age, you know, starving in the street, and they brought her in. And mm-hmm. of course, the you know Phil was like Phil's wife said, "I think they found a lost puppy or something. They're hiding her in the mm-hmm. basement." You know, oh okay, that's fine. Well, they'll they'll tell us in good time. And, yeah, you know, and and uh, and yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, and, and his his his. His again the daughter's perspective and the family's perspective and again it's like it's a great job of I feel I felt it was true I felt like knowing what I knew about the Marvel universe from the comics yes if the if a regular guy and a regular family in the sixties were in the middle of it I felt everything in there felt organic mm-hmm. and natural and awesome and terrifying at the same time because mm-hmm. again we always have the idea of we read the comics and we get the full narrative you know. We know what the, the supervillain is doing, and we know what the hero is doing. Yeah, so true. we're like, oh, no, look out, Captain America. Baron Zemo's laid a trap for you, right. you know? and We, we know what everyone's thinking. But we, we only see what Phil sees. Right. We only see what he sees, whether he sees in person or on the news mm-hmm. or from what of his other friends may, may say. There is tons of things constantly. Somebody on the street was just like, oh yeah, the Avengers were uptown fighting so-and-so whatever, Mm -hmm. and uh, what? I missed that. Oh, you know? Mm -hmm. And another interesting thing, too, is about how people are getting a little commonplace about it. They're getting like, okay, okay. They're getting very used to people like like getting saved or getting this. And in in New York, it's becoming accepted. Not commonplace, but they're not they're not as freaked out as they say they were 20 years ago mm-hmm. when Namor and Human Torch uh, emerged, which yeah. actually leads us into book three, of course. Mm-hmm. So, book three. Uh, the cover is the Human Torch reflected in the body of the Silver Surfer as he is coming to Earth for the which, first time. Which is a very impressive 
piece of technical art. You know, yeah. anybody can anybody knows anything about art knows that you know reflections and distortions and and and, and illustration and painting are very hard and tricky to pull off. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, Ross Ross really knocks it out of the park. It's amazing because um, when you're looking at a reflection distorted the way that we see on the Silver Surfer's body, and you're going to bring that to art, what do you focus on? Like, yeah. it's really hard to get a focus on any given image in something that's chrome and shaped like a man. Um, also, uh, when the series was originally published in the four, uh, four novels, uh, or four issues, it had a clear acetate cover. Yes. With a logo on top. So what you would do is is that you would see this. It would say, you know, Marvel Comics presents Marvels, Ross, Busaic, and mm-hmm. then you'd see the art. But you peel the, you'd turn the cover, yeah. and the cover was clear, There's and the, then underneath yeah. it was just the art. Right. Just the art, no text, no nothing to mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was a, that was a that was a great little effect. And mm-hmm. they, they they sort of, they in in the trades they did have just the art as it is. But when you bought this, it was like, oh, oh right. okay, this was the cover. People, oh, that's just ooh, mm. that was the money shot that made people buy it in droves. <laughs> and oh boy, did they ever! Hang on, comic book fans, we're an hour into this review, and we've got to cut it short. So what we need to do is go into part two of Marvels, and we will explore books three and four in the next episode of Made in the Trade. Hear you then.